Another Sustainable Futures report, but still the same Anthony Day. Well, a week older, but more or less the same. It's Friday the 8th of November, soon be Christmas. Soon be the general election, but I'm going to try not to talk about that. I call this episode, It's Later Than You Think, but really, it's later than you want to think. We've had warnings for years about the climate crisis, But as a global population, we've been postponing serious action. Now, at the 11th hour plus 59 minutes, there's the world scientists' warning of a climate emergency. This one is serious. As if the others weren't. In other news, I'll be talking about the moratorium on fracking, a citizens' assembly, a new coal mine, smog in Delhi, why Trump may pull federal aid funds from California fire zones, why it could be the end of the runway for some private planes, and why you may need more than wellies in Dublin. Finally, Dr Matt Winning tells us about his work as a climate researcher and his other life as a stand-up comedian. Top story this week is the Alliance of World Scientists, AWS, which has issued a climate emergency warning. The AWS is a new international assembly of scientists, which is independent of both governmental and non-governmental organisations and corporations. It claims 23,000 members across 180 countries. Here's the opening part of their statement. We scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any catastrophic threat. In this paper, we present a suite of graphical vital signs of climate change over the last 40 years. Results show greenhouse gas emissions are still rising, with increasingly damaging effects. With few exceptions, we are largely failing to address this predicament. The climate crisis has arrived and is accelerating faster than many scientists expected. It is more severe than anticipated, threatening natural ecosystems and the fate of humanity. We suggest six critical and interrelated steps that governments and the rest of humanity can take to lessen the worst effects of climate change, covering energy, short-lived pollutants, nature, food, economy and population. Mitigating and adapting to climate change entails transformations in the ways we govern, manage, feed and fulfil material and energy requirements. We are encouraged by a recent global surge of concern. Government bodies are making climate emergency declarations. The Pope issued an encyclical on climate change. Schoolchildren are striking. Ecocide lawsuits are proceeding in the courts. Grassroots citizen movements are demanding change. As scientists, we urge widespread use of our vital signs and anticipate that graphical indicators will better allow policymakers and the public to understand the magnitude of this crisis, track progress and realign priorities to alleviate climate change. The good news is that such transformative change with social and ecological justice promises greater human well-being in the long run than business as usual. We believe 
that prospects will be greatest if policymakers and the rest of humanity promptly respond to our warning and declaration of a climate emergency and act to sustain life on planet Earth, our only home. A link to the full text of that paper is on the blog, which you'll remember is sustainablefutures.report. This week, of course, is when President Trump's America begins the process of withdrawing the country from the Paris Climate Change Agreement. 188 countries signed up, but the world's largest emitter has decided to leave because compliance punishes the United States. In other news, the big news in the UK is a moratorium on fracking. This brings England in line with Scotland, Wales, Ireland, France and many other countries across the world. It is, however, a moratorium, not a total ban, so if the present government were re-elected, they could allow fracking to restart. Fracking is highly unpopular in the areas where exploratory drillings have taken place and the sites have been beset by determined civil protest. Opponents are concerned that fracking will release dangerous levels of methane and that water used in the operations will contaminate drinking water. Fracking produces natural gas, a fossil fuel, at a time when every effort is being made to phase fossil fuels out. In the US, activists have monitored levels of methane leakage at fracking sites and found them to be well in excess of levels reported by the companies. At these levels, fracked gas is producing more emissions than coal. Jeremy Leggett, I've mentioned him a few times, has produced a detailed analysis of fracking. He reports that nobody in the US has made money from it and describes the way that the companies are chasing returns by pouring more money into it as a Ponzi scheme. Remember Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme? He used money from new investors to pay out high returns. As long as there was a constant stream of new investors, everyone was happy. When that stopped, they found there was nothing left. Leggett reports that fracking firms are borrowing money to pay the interest on existing loans. He fears that the industry's collapse could trigger the next global financial crisis. Find his report, presented as a slideshow, at jeremyleggett.net. That's with two G's and two T's, jeremyleggett.net. In the same week as the UK government announced a halt to fracking, it gave its approval to a new deep coal mine in Cumbria, northwest England. At first sight, it seems perverse to expand production of coal, the dirtiest of the fossil fuels. This particular mine will produce metallurgical coal for steelmaking, both for export and to replace imports. Greenpeace says electricity should be used for steelmaking, but industry experts say that's not how it works. The mine will generate 500 new jobs with as many as 2,000 in the supply chain. If we're going to make steel, we are going to need coal. Can carbon capture and storage be adapted to the industry? Maybe in the UK, as indicated on the West Cumbria mining website. The risk is that this coal will be exported to nations with little or no emissions regulations and UK products made to exacting environmental standards will be priced out of the market. There's nothing simple in sustainability. 
A very difficult call for the local planners, but in the end they found in favour of the mine and the government supported them against objectors. One of Extinction Rebellion's demands has been for the establishment of a citizens' assembly. I complained last week that the government under Theresa May had promised such a body, but that nothing had happened. Everything's changed. Now a cross-party parliamentary group formed of six committees representing different government departments has just announced that it will approach 30,000 households and invite people to become assembly members. The invitees to Climate Assembly UK have been selected at random from across the UK. From those who respond, 110 people will be chosen as a representative sample of the population. They will meet over four weekends from late January in Birmingham and will discuss topics ranging from transport to household energy use. Extinction Rebellion gave the move a very cautious welcome and explained that the proposed assembly did not meet their expectations. We're pleased that 30,000 people will be receiving a letter in the post inviting them to take part in a citizens' assembly on climate change, they said. We hope they respond so that they have a chance of participating in this important citizens' assembly. More specifically, they say, we are devastated that this citizens' assembly will only be addressing how to reach net zero emissions by 2050. We would urge the organisers to ensure that the members of the Assembly are presented with evidence as to why 2050 is inadequate. This Citizens' Assembly is advisory, toothless in other words. The Citizens' Assembly must be founded in climate and ecological justice. Where is the select committee representing DEFRA, Department from Environment, Food and Rural Affairs? Why are they not involved in this? Extinction Rebellion demands a citizen assembly that is endorsed by government and has real decision-making power. Extinction Rebellion's detailed response can be found on their website, and there's a link on the blog. This week, the UK Finance Minister, or Chancellor of the Exchequer as we prefer to call him, launched a review to determine how the UK would end its contribution to global warming. The Net Zero Review, said the Chancellor, will assess how the UK can maximise economic growth opportunities from its transformation to a green economy. The UK is leading the way on tackling climate change as the first major economy to legislate for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. I've just been doing some research into carbon offsets and I'm concerned about what net zero emissions actually means. I have serious doubts that it's achievable. I'll do some more research on that and get back to you. I'll read the terms of reference for the Net Zero review as well. They say, The review will also consider how to ensure we can cut our emissions without seeing them exported elsewhere. That is very important because in the past the UK has not been the only country to claim massive emissions reductions while ignoring the fact that it has been importing goods which used to be made at home in factories which have gone. I was also a bit concerned that it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer who made the announcement. Does this mean that we're going to do it as long as it doesn't cost too much? I know we don't have a Department of Energy and Climate Change anymore, but shouldn't the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy be taking a lead on this? And what about the aforementioned DEFRA, given that land management and use contribute as much to emissions as 
electricity generation, at least on a global scale. Reports from Delhi this week reveal that the city is shrouded in smog with atmospheric pollution some 10 times, some say 50 times, some say 900 times, safe levels. Whatever it is, it's bad. The city always has a bad atmosphere, but the present crisis has been caused by firecrackers set off to celebrate Diwali and by farmers burning stubble in fields surrounding the city. In an attempt to improve things, the government has announced that vehicles can only use the roads on alternate days, depending on whether their registration number is odd or even. Many drivers drive anyway and take the back roads to avoid being stopped. They probably drive further and make the problem worse by doing this. At least one politician decided to take his car out on the wrong day and defy the ban on principle. It's not just air quality. Women bathing in the river to give thanks to the sun god, which they couldn't see, found the water thick, oily, smelly and shrouded in layers of foam. Like many developing countries, India seems to have regulations, but no effective enforcement. The British Labour Party is exploring plans to ban private jets from UK airports from as early as 2025, should it win the election in the party's latest broadside against the super-rich. It will undoubtedly improve air quality, at least to some extent, but it'll be an impossible battle to win, and there are so many other issues that the government should surely be focusing on. The prospect of electric planes for short journeys looks increasingly realistic. Maybe better to concentrate on supporting R&D in that area. The poor air quality in Delhi has led to flights being diverted from the city. Fortunately, air quality, though poor, is not yet as bad as that in London. In California, people are recovering from wildfires which have burned for weeks, damaging property and driving people from their homes. President Trump has threatened to withdraw federal aid from the state, blaming the Democrat governor for poor forest management. The governor responded by calling the president a climate change denier. Regardless of their spat, I would have thought that top priority should be cleaning up the fires and withholding aid money can only hurt the residents of the state. Writing in Forbes magazine, Michael Schellenberger suggests that the fire situation is not nearly as simple as it might appear and might have nothing at all to do with climate change. The New York Times reports that the fires this year might have been spectacular, but were not as bad as last year when 86 people were killed. Quoting Jonathan Keeley, Dr. Jonathan Keeley, a US Geological Survey scientist, Schellenberger explains how different fires take hold in different locations. There are forest fires, and there are fires which burn on shrublands closer to the coast. Few people live in the forests, and fires are natural. Regularly burning the forest floor litter keeps it clean and keeps fires small. Over the last hundred years, the US Fire Service has been quick to put out forest fires, so the quantity of leaf litter and fallen branches has grown. When this catches fire, the fire has more fuel, and so is more intense. Forests can withstand small fires. Major fires wipe them out and leave shrubland. In the populated areas nearer the coast, fires have caught the undergrowth and the 70 mile an hour winds have driven the flames over wider areas. 
Many have been started by faulty power lines and others by careless people. Keeley believes climate change has little to do with it. I don't think the president is wrong about the need to better manage, he says. I don't know if you want to call it mismanaged, but the forests have been managed in a way that has allowed the fire problem to get worse. So on this occasion, the president is not totally wrong, but it's hard to blame the present governor for policies that have been in place for 100 years. Listener Paul O'Malley draws my attention to an article in the Irish Times. Professor Peter Thorne of Maynooth University says it's only a matter of time until the elements combine for a devastating storm surge which will leave thousands of homes, businesses and landmark buildings in Dublin underwater. If a storm force onshore wind coincided with a high spring tide, water from Dublin Bay would surge into the River Liffey while it was in full flow from the Wicklow Mountains. The combination of water trying to escape and water being pushed up into the river means it will end up moving sideways, he said. The Liffey would overtop into the surrounding areas, resulting in major flooding in the city centre. There would be hundreds or thousands of properties, basically, residential, commercial and government properties that would be underwater for a considerable length of time with all the implications that that has. Of course, Dublin is by no means the only city vulnerable to storm surges. Many of the world's major cities are on coastlines or estuaries. Sea level rise is measured in millimetres per year, but multiplying that by the vast area of the ocean's surface gives an awful lot of water. Water to be added to the surge when wind, rain and tides coincide. Professor Thorne expects to see such a surge within his lifetime. He's 40 years old. And now here is Dr Matt Winning, climate researcher and comedian. First of all, thank you very much for taking the time to join the Sustainable Futures Report. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, I've introduced you as a researcher at UCL, a researcher yeah. into, into climate. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit about what you are actually doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my work uh, and sort of area of expertise is mostly climate change policy. So it's very much uh, forward looking in the sense that it's about uh, changes to the energy system and changes to technology as well as changes to the economy that have to happen um, to try to achieve the sort of uh, climate change targets that we have. I'm doing some work in the UK at the moment and what it's going to mean to meet our, our climate change targets. So I've done some work on the circular economy and, and a kind of host of of energy and sustainability related things but the, i'd say the majority of my works tends to be climate focused and my phd uh, looked at um a climate looked at a carbon tax in the uk so how realistic is the labor party's 2030 zero carbon target well it's it's a it's a very ambitious target um shall we say yeah uh, but i think um it is at the stage where these sort of ambitious targets are actually probably required. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's a very different sort of target to the to the current sort of 2050 target that the, that the UK government has set. Where it has the whole time I've been working on this area, it's very much been within a sort of business as usual 
mind frame and and that's where the you know the 2050 targets and have have come from they've come from within a system that we've talked about where policy levers uh, can achieve decarbonization to mm-hmm. towards net zero by 2050 whereas if you are talking about doing that in the next 10 years you're talking about an entirely different system and and doing it without out with normal policy levers that most people have have been discussing over the past couple of decades um so i mean it's it's possible but nobody should be under any uh delusions about the um, the amount of effort right uh, and the amount of upheaval that, that achieving something like that would actually uh entail yeah i mean i i say upheaval i don't i don't necessarily think upheaval is a good word i think i mean i think change you know yeah. uh, people need to be aware of what sort of change is going to happen so it could be a bit scary then. Yeah, I mean, it could be scary, but it could also just be like, oh, a lot's going to, you know, a lot's going to change in the next yeah. 10 years as yeah. opposed to a bit's going to change in the next 10 years and then it's going to keep ramping up over, uh, you know. And, and, and I, so I think I think areas, I mean, this isn't my area of expertise at all, but I think areas of, of behaviour and, and public acceptability and other areas like that are going to become increasingly important over the coming kind of decade, I think. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting time and, you know, where the, the area that I'm working in, I think it's incredibly interesting to, yeah. because, it, you know, I think we, we've had debates about climate on various aspects, but I think most people are now... Uh, well aware of what's happening and want to know what either they can do about it or what needs to be done about it and they want either you know either they can get on with stuff or probably more likely they'd like the government to get on with stuff climate change is clearly a major part of your day job but it also occupies you the rest of the time tell us a bit about that (laughs) well yeah my life i don't i used to get to switch off um from climate change by going and performing uh, stand-up comedy um, in several evenings a week. Um, And I started that uh, quite a long time ago, 2009, uh, during my PhD. Um, And yeah, I used that as a way of sort of uh, getting away from it and getting out the house in the the evenings. And it was a very much a hobby uh, for a year or two, but it sort of escalated fairly quickly. People kept telling me I was good at it. Which well, you were at the was... Fringe this year, weren't you? Yes, yes. I've been a technical. That was my t- tenth year in a row at the Fringe. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. No, you also so got I... yourself on Radio Four, and although you didn't win the joke of the festival, you you were certainly quoted, weren't you? Oh yeah, yeah. I've had that a couple a couple of years now. But but basically, what happened was, um, you know, I'd been doing comedy as this kind of entirely separate entity for a while, and then two years ago 23 years ago 2017 um i decided uh, to see whether it was possible to actually do comedy about climate change because i realized it was the one area that nobody was talking about and an area that i actually had a a bit of an expertise in yeah, so can, can we really laugh at something as serious as this oh absolutely i think it's a hundred percent necessary yeah um, but doesn't just, that lead people to trivialize it I don't think so at all. No, no. I mean, I've uh, yeah. So I've done three shows now uh, over the last three years, uh, all hour-long shows about quite different shows about climate change, and I've found the level of engagement that I get from people uh, on the subject is 
surprisingly more than you get on any uh, any other people want to talk about this subject and they want to engage with it but they don't really have a way a gateway into it that um is something that they understand you know they understand they don't want to go and sit and listen to someone lecturing about it or needless to say listen to a, you know, a serious piece of something about it because it's it's that for a lot of people that's quite hard to digest yes. and it feels like very judgmental and it feels um like they're maybe being lectured at essentially mm-hmm. um there's a number of of ways in which i think uh, climate communication is it's hard. It's a hard thing to do, and it's a hard thing to do well. And yeah, yeah. comedy, actually, I think, can ease people into it and reduce a lot of the barriers that pe- people find. And and I just found this by accident. This wasn't this wasn't me coming up with some theory about how to uh, communicate to people, but just from my experience of doing it, I think uh, people actually appreciate being allowed to laugh about it as well so it's beneficial not just to get new people thinking about climate change or thinking about it in an accessible way but also i think it's beneficial for people like you and i who think about this subject in a you know pretty heavy way or and actually being able to laugh about it to be able to sort of realize how how it makes us feel um Mm. can can be really beneficial as well so I, i i i think there's almost no downsides to it. Right. So it's, it's your contribution then to getting the message out. Yeah. And I think we, exactly. And I think obviously this podcast that you're doing is your, your contribution to trying to get the message out. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think everybody's, you know, trying to use the skills that they have to just make people aware of, you know, specifics about it uh, and, 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 get, uh, and do it well, but also to do something uh, entertaining, but to tell people how urgent, you know, how urgent yeah. the message is, because yeah. uh, we, we are still in a stage where, you know, I don't think people have a full understanding of, of what it is. But yeah, and my intention with this is kind of long term now is to try to get more entertainment made um, in different areas yeah. uh, about climate change, because it's not happened yet. And it will happen because, you know, it's becoming part of, a, a day-to-day uh, narrative of British society and I'm sure many other societies around the world. We're looking at a completely different approach to all this. What's your view on Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, um, I talk about it a little bit in the show this year. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't, it's not my area of expertise, so I don't want to, I don't feel like I want to comment on it too much, if, if that makes sense, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something I'm involved in. I, I guess activism isn't isn't really my area. Um, so you were in the streets then uh, last week? No, I, I did go and I've done I've done some comedy for them on one or two occasions. Mm. My general overall feeling was wh- wh- when they arrived, I was unsure about the tactics and unsure about it um, about the demands as well. Mm. Um, but. Uh, I think having kind of thought about it more and tried to understand where it's coming from and, and, and the motivation for it, uh, I think it's beneficial. I think it's a good thing. We're at a stage now where doing nothing 
isn't really an option. You know, people say it's disruptive, uh, but I couldn't get out of London uh, during a day in July because the train tracks had melted. Yeah. yeah. And that was pretty disruptive as well. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's happening regardless. The disruption is going to happen regardless of what your views are. So I'd rather be on the side of people who are disrupting to uh, to stop the, uh, the, the the large scale long term disruption because um, I think that's a lot worse. Yes, yes. Great. Well, thank you very much. This is all very interesting stuff. Is there any thought you'd like to leave with the listeners before we wind this up? This is what I've been trying to leave people with recently is the idea that, you know, you can do nothing about this and your life and your society and the world that you feel comfortable in will be altered in a way which you are unable to control. Or you can try to keep things roughly the same, which is what, you know, one and a half degrees, two degrees is, is, is sort of attempting to do. But to do that, you need to change and society needs to change in uh, ways that you can control and in ways that maybe require, you know, things in your life that you, you wouldn't expect, but but you will still be in control of many of those decisions. Thank you very much indeed. Have you got any shows coming up? Um, I've got a show at, uh, in Lancaster, at Lancaster Arts Centre, uh, on the 13th of November. Um, and beyond that, I've got a tour uh, coming up next uh, spring now right. that I'm going to be doing but I've not put many dates in I've got the tw- the 21st to the 23rd of uh, February at the Vaults Festival in London in Waterloo in London uh, but I'm putting a number of dates around the country in at the moment mm-hmm. uh, and they should all hopefully be uh, up on my website in maybe a few weeks great and the old website is uh, just mattwinning.com Oh, well, that's easy enough. I'll put a link to that on the blog, which goes out at the same time as this. That would be super. Thank you very much for your time. Not at all. Thank you, Anthony. Um, Yeah, I look forward to listening to the episode at some point. Thanks, Matt. And finally, Greta Thunberg, tireless teenage climate activist, set sail for America back in August in order to attend the UN COP25 climate conference in Chile next month. Now it's announced that the venue's changed and the event will take place in Madrid. Anyone sailing that way? Apparently Greta's looking for a lift. But before I go, as I prepare this episode for publication, news comes in that Extinction Rebellion have won in court. They challenged the use of Section 14 of the Public Order Act by the police during the October Rebellion. The police applied it to the whole of London, but the judge agreed with XR that it could only be applied to individual demonstrations, not a wide geographic area. It suggested that those arrested could now sue the police for false imprisonment. You've got to sympathise with the police. They're being caught in the middle because Extinction Rebellion believes that only by overstretching police resources can the government be made to listen. While much of the policing in October was low-key and almost friendly, allegations of heavy-handedness, particularly against disabled protesters, must be investigated. And that's it for another week. 
I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report, and thank you for listening. As you know, the Sustainable Futures Report comes to you without advertising, sponsorship or subsidy. I do benefit from the generosity of my sponsors. They pledge to donate a monthly amount from $1 upwards, which helps to cover my hosting and transcription costs. If you are already a patron, your support is much appreciated. If not, you could sign up at patreon.com slash sfr. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. If you do, you'll get a shout out, a unique metal badge and my sincere gratitude. I'll also give priority to any issues you think I should address and you'll usually get each episode at least one day in advance of Friday publication. That's it for this week. There will be another Sustainable Futures Report next week. I wonder what it'll be about. Thank you.